Kids, you, uh, you're kind of behind in our story because you spend most of your time downstairs and you don't know where we are. We've been wor- reading through the book of Acts, and uh, Acts tells the story of how the church got started. So the Christian church has been around for about 2,000 years, and at one point it was just a few guys in a room, and now it's billions of people all over the world. Acts tells the story of how that got started. I want to quickly summarize what we've seen in Acts so far, help you guys get up to speed. Before I do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to read from your word. We thank you that your word has been preserved for us all these thousands of years, and we can trust it. We thank you that you have given it to us as a gift, and we pray that you would use it to shape us this morning. I pray especially for the the little ears and minds that are listening, Lord, would you help them to uh, understand what it is that's in your word and being said about it? And would you help them to be encouraged to be growing up, living their lives surrendered to you? In Jesus' name, amen. So about 2,000 years ago, after the death and resurrection and ascension, that's when Jesus ascended up into heaven, after that, the church was born. Jesus got the the disciples ready for the birth of the church with a couple announcements saying, get ready for these things. The, the main thing that he said to them was he gave them a mission. You've seen this a few times. It's in Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission. This is right before Jesus ascends to heaven. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Basically, kids, what he means is I'm the boss of everything. Therefore, go make disciples or make followers of Jesus, of all the nations around the whole world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus sends us on a mission, and he promises to be with us. Then in Acts 1.8, the disciples are told to pause, to wait. Don't go on the mission yet. Jesus says this, you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here's your mission, but wait, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The third member of the Trinity is going to come, he's going to live inside of you guys, he's going to empower you, then you are to go on this mission that I've given you. And when we talk about this mission, we've got these these four areas, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. If we look at the map on the next slide here, you see that the box in the upper right-hand corner is just a zoomed-in version of that area down in the bottom right corner. So the star is the capital city, Jerusalem. It's in what we would refer to as a county of Judea. Next to that would be like the next county, Samaria, or because there are walking everywhere, it'd be more like in the next state over for us. So um, at this point, the church is all in Jerusalem. They're all speaking the same language. They've got the same Judaism as a background for religion. Their culture's all the same. It's the same kind of people all together. There's a little bit of variance once you get out into the county of Judea, but once you step over into Samaria, things change. They're Language changes a little bit. Religion changes a little bit. It'd be kind of like us going over the border into Kentucky. The language changes a little bit. And in some cases, the religion changes a little bit. Not a lot of snake handling churches here in Dark County. There are some still in Kentucky, right? 
So that would be like going to Samaria. And then the ends of the earth, well, that map shows you what they would think of as the ends of the earth at that point in history, just the surrounding of the Mediterranean Sea, all the cultures that are around that. That is their mission field at this point. We could think of it also in concentric circles where you got Jerusalem in the middle, Judea, Samaria, and the world. And we are called to the same kind of mission. So if you are a Christian, you are called to be on mission, spreading the gospel in your Jerusalem. So like your closest group of people that you live with and work with and go to school with, and they're all pretty similar to you. And your Judea, the surrounding area that you may, you may not see everybody very often, but they're, they're like you, they're similar to you, and you can relate to them well. That's your Judea and Samaria. Well, it's a little farther out. You've got to cross some cultural boundaries in order to communicate. And then the world could be all kinds of boundaries you've got to cross in order to get out there. But we as individuals and we as a church, just like them as individuals and them as a church, we're called to these four concentric circles. But remember, they were told to wait for the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. We read this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. It's just a small group of them at this point. They can all be in the same room. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seated. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We'll talk later on in Acts about this idea of the gift of speaking in tongues. At this point in the story of Acts, we know from that chapter that it's regular earthly languages that they didn't learn, but suddenly they're able to speak. So all of a sudden, I could speak Russian and communicate to the Russian that's in the the house next door what the gospel is, right? Later on in Acts, later on in the New Testament, there's debate. Does that change? Does that become something other than just regular earthly languages. We'll get to that later. But at this point, they're able to communicate with people that they shouldn't have been able to. So in Acts 1, we've got 120 people. In Acts 2, after Peter preaches his first sermon, there are 3,000 people added to the church that one day. Later in Acts 2, we read that the Lord was adding to the number of people daily, those who were being saved. By the time we get to Acts 4, there are 5,000 men. They're not even trying to count all the women and children. There's just too many to keep track of. And by Acts 6, as the church continues to grow, there's a need for deacons or servants. The church selects seven men. So far, we've met Stephen. Today, we're going to meet Philip, both deacons, chosen to administer a food program for the widows and those in need. But God has great plans for them far beyond that food program. And we read that through their ministry in Acts 6-7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And that was really surprising to me the first time that ever sunk in because the, the religious establishment, they were the biggest enemies of Jesus. And yet here we're told not not just as a result of the preaching of the apostles, the love that everybody has for each other, the incredible witness that they are, but as a direct result of this food program working smoothly, somehow the church is able to reach even some of the priests. 
We saw over the last few weeks how Stephen, who was called to administer food, rises up as a preacher, as an evangelist, as a miracle worker even. He's arrested, he's put in prison, he's put on trial. He has this long sermon where he he lays out the history of Israel, trying to show the people this is how God was with you here, and God was with you here, and God was with you here, and then God came in the flesh as Jesus, and you missed it. In fact, you murdered him. And they get so mad at this accusation that Stephen's saying, you missed the biggest event in human history. God came, walked among you as Jesus, and you murdered him. They get so mad at that that they murder him, Stephen. This was in Acts 7, 58. They cast him out of the city, threw him out of the gate. They stoned him, picked up giant rocks and beat him to death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's where we ended last week. And that's how the first major section of the book of Acts ends. What happens next? Well, remember, we've got the Great Commission to go into all the world. We've got the command to wait for the Holy Spirit. We've got the Holy Spirit that's come and yet they're still waiting. They're still in Jerusalem. God is going to use tragedy of the death of Stephen to get his church on the move, to get them out of Jerusalem, out onto the mission that he originally called them to. Just let let that sink in a little bit, because we look at the death of Stephen and we think, what a terrible injustice, a hero of God, a hero of the faith, is wrongfully murdered by a bunch of thugs. And yet in God's storyline, God's going to use that tragedy and all the hurt and all the pain that goes with it, all the people mourning Stephen's death, he's going to use all of that to push the church out of its comfort zone, out into its mission field where it was called to in the first place. When the Bible was originally written, it didn't have chapters and verse numbers. Those were added by a guy about 500 years ago. He did the whole Bible on, while he was taking a trip from England to somewhere in France. Now, it took a long time back then. Right? You had to take a boat across and do all that. But in the course of that trip, he went through the whole Bible assigning uh, chapter number and verse numbers. Those chapter numbers and verse numbers, those are not, they're not intrinsic to the Bible. They're not inspired by God like the Bible itself is. And sometimes I think, eh, you kind of got it wrong. Like maybe the, the carriage bounced over a bump at that time and he put the, the mark in the wrong spot. And he said, it's good enough. This is one of those locations because we just read how Saul was overseeing the execution of Stephen. Then we get a chapter break and then verse one is, and Saul approved of this execution. And it really, really kind of belongs back in, in seven. I'm not saying that I doubt the inspiration of the Bible at all. I'm saying I doubt the packaging sometimes. The Word of God itself is perfect, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Those 66 books are entirely trustworthy. It's the human packaging that is just a little bit off there. All right, so back to the text. 
We meet a guy named Saul. Who is Saul? Why is he mentioned here? Why is he, why is he in a place of authority where he's, he doesn't have to bother stoning Stephen himself? Instead, he gets to oversee it and administer it. How did he get that authority? Saul is a young Jewish man. He's becoming a religious rock star in the religion of Judaism. He's brilliant. One of the most brilliant minds the world has ever seen. He's been to the right schools. He's had the right teachers. He's had the right grooming. He's on track to become a rock star in Judaism. We'll see in the next few chapters how God completely derails Paul's life. Let it slip. Saul is Paul. This man who's overseeing the murder of Stephen, who is described as going from house to house, dragging men and women out and putting them in prison, goes from being the chief persecutor of the church to being the chief missionary on behalf of the church. This is one of the the greatest conversions in all of history. And Paul becomes the greatest missionary that Christianity has ever had. But for right now, he's still Saul, and he's still doing bad things. So let's read Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So there's a word in here that I want to make sure that we define. Persecution. Here's what the Oxford English Dictionary says. Hostility and ill treatment, especially on the basis of ethnicity, religion, or sexual orientation, or political beliefs. And you know that that was changed sometime in the last couple years. Because if you go back to any dictionary more than a few years old, there's no way that sexual orientation would be included in that definition, right? This is an example of the woke worldview rewriting history, changing language, even changing our dictionary. Some dictionaries are changing just every few days. They're getting tweaked in order to mean something that the words didn't mean before. What I find most interesting is that at least within the United States, I read articles almost every day that that point to this. Most of the religious persecution happening in the United States today is actually being perpetrated by the champions of the LGBTQ plus movement against Christians. And yet, they're inserted in here as a target of persecution. There's some crazy Orwellian logic going on there. But persecution is the hostility, the ill-treatment of people based on different things, religion being one of those things. Persecution in America today could be as simple as being banned from YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, like so many of the people that I really respect and have followed for a long time, they're disappearing from social media. Almost every day I get a message saying, I'm, I'm gone, I'm kicked off of YouTube, I'm kicked off of Twitter, I've been banned from Facebook. I've got, I've got a friend in, in Michigan who uh, about, about every month, suddenly there'll be a Facebook post from him saying, I got out of Facebook jail, and then a day later he's gone again, he's back in 
in Facebook chat. He, lo- he loves to pick fights. But if you've got the wrong opinion, you've got the wrong thoughts, our tech overlords will shut you down. But there's other kinds of persecution, even in the United States. People lose jobs. We see people with religious exemptions for vaccination being turned down, losing their jobs, being kicked out of the military after risking their lives to serve our country. That is a form of religious persecution. People lose friendships. They lose security. They lose their safety because people hate the religious views and they have the power to mistreat them. Now, persecution in Acts 8, though, is on a whole other level. I don't mean to minimize what's happening in the United States right now. In fact, I would say, unless we fight and defeat the rising tide of persecution, religious persecution in the United States, then eventually, much sooner than we hope, we will be in a situation like we see in Acts 8 here. When we tolerate small religious persecution, it grows into bigger religious persecution. We're not there yet, but much of the world is. There's a group called Open Doors, and every year they publish the World Watch List, where they say these are the countries in the world where it's most dangerous to be a Christian. And for the last 20 plus years, North Korea has been the number one most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Let's look at the first map here. You can see the, the darker shaded areas are the more dangerous places, and North Korea is way off on the right there by itself on the other side of China. In North Korea, people are regularly beaten, imprisoned, tortured, and killed simply for being Christians, even for having been found with a a fragment, a, a page of the Bible on their person. They can be imprisoned or killed in North Korea. More than 20 years now, it's been number one, and this year it changed. It's now number two. As you look at this map... Anybody want to guess which country in the world overtook North Korea as the most dangerous place for Christian persecution? Anybody want to guess? Iran is a very good guess. Very dangerous to be a Christian in Iran, but it's not number one. But that's a good guess. Starts with an A. Afghanistan. Why? did Afghanistan move to number one this year? It's because of how we shamefully abandoned them. We gave millions of dollars, so much military equipment, over to the Taliban, and the Taliban are destroying the Christian community in Afghanistan. There are now just a few thousand Christians left in the country. They are all in hiding. They are all desperately trying to get out, and there are multiple volunteer organizations in the United States that are going in commando style in order to try to get these people out to safety, it's just, it just gets harder and harder every day. They are being hunted down. They are being killed by the people that we armed. Here's some statistics for you for world persecution. In the last year, over 360 million Christians have lived in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. So the entire population of the United States is 330-some million. More than that, Christians living in places where they are facing significant persecution. 
almost 6,000 Christians killed for their faith in the past 12 months. I don't mean killed with their faith, but killed for their faith, right? They are dead because they said, I belong to Jesus. 6,000 that we know of. Over 5,000 churches and other Christian buildings attacked, usually burned down. Over 6,000 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. This is not just a, you know, bands of vigilante thugs attacking people. In many of these places, it's state-sponsored persecution against Christians. The legal system is persecuting them. And then finally, almost 4,000 Christians abducted, most of those in Nigeria, which is a Christian majority country. But the, the outskirts of Nigeria are being ruled by Muslim terrorists who for years now have been every year kidnapping thousands of, of Christians, selling many of them as slaves, trying to get ransom from others, taking the young women forced as wives for these terrorists. Back to Acts. The persecution in Acts is violent and it is terrifying. Luke, who's recording this for us, spares the details. He could have gone into detail and told us about some of those stories, some of those families being dragged out of their houses and what happened to them. But instead, he just goes over the top at a surface level. Let's go back and read it. Saul approved of his execution, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So a few things in there. First of all, it's not just a persecution, it's a great persecution. It's focused on the church in Jerusalem, and so the church scatters out into Judea and Samaria, which, that sounds familiar, right? That's part of the mission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they're going out, except one group of people, the apostles. The 12 dudes chosen by Jesus to be the leader of the early church, they stick around in Jerusalem. Why is that? Are they afraid to run? They have a safe house that they're hiding in? Or are they saying, we will not run, we will stand, we will trust God to take care of us? I don't know. We're not told what they're thinking, just that they stay. Now imagine them as the shepherds of this church, some of the anxiety and stress that they're feeling. These are the people that God has called them to love and care for and lead and take care of, and now they're scattered, boom, all over the place. There's no text messaging, no phone calls. Like, how are they doing? Are they in prison? Are they being beaten? Are they abandoning their faith? Are they adopting all kinds of wonky, false ideas because we're not there to teach them? Sometimes when we face hardship, we change our theology. We often go off in crazy directions. I've seen that happen many times. Somebody seems solid in the faith. Hardship comes against them. They change what they believe in order to deal with this hardship. I once served under a, a senior pastor who had been very solid, leading his church well for a long time. He went through a midlife crisis in which he says for six months he was continually oppressed by demons. 
Every day he's battling against demons. Until finally his wife prays for him in a special way, and it's, the oppression's immediately gone. He's free from what he says are demons oppressing him. Well, that sends him on a new quest to understand the spiritual world and the idea of spiritual warfare, angels and demons, all that. He becomes, he becomes obsessed with this, and he, he goes off in wrong and dangerous directions. He starts listening to false teachers. He starts believing false things, and he leads the church in a false, dangerous, unbiblical direction. His hardship changed his theology in a bad way. Sometimes, though, hardship changes our theology in a good way. We get words like James in the first chapter of James where he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face hardships of various kinds. He goes on to say that those hardships, they, they grow your faith. They make you stronger. For these early Christians in the book of Acts... We will see how God uses hardships of persecution, great persecution, to strengthen them and to send them out on mission and to multiply the ministry of the church. Did you hear that? We tend to think of, okay, Bible study, worship, discipleship, those build us up, they get us ready for mission so that we can multiply the work of the church. God uses here great persecution to strengthen, to disciple the people, to send them out on mission, and to multiply the ministry of the church. Not the way we usually think about it, but that's what he did. Verse 2 says that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, public weeping and wailing for the funeral. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house after house. He dragged off men and women. And committed them to prison. So I think about these guys who buried Stephen. They are heroes. Just like when the, the small group of women and men buried Jesus' body, they were risking their lives saying, we are on his side. The one that you just murdered, we're going to take care of his body. They're risking being murdered themselves. These guys, by burying Stephen, are identifying themselves with Stephen and risking the same fate as Stephen. Verse 4, now those who scattered, so just poof, thousands of them in every direction, those who scattered went about preaching the word. So they didn't just run to the villages and go into hiding, they went out as missionaries. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, here's our new guy went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Who's Philip? There are two Philips in the New Testament. One is one of those original 12 guys. He's Philip the Apostle. This is a different Philip. He becomes known as Philip the Evangelist. Evangelist might have a bad taste in your mouth if you think of certain characters who have abused that title, certain characters on TV who are always trying to get your money and they're claiming to be evangelists. 
Evangelist is actually a title that should be true of all of us. Every Christian is called to take the gospel, the euangelion is the Greek word, which we get evangelist from. We're all called to be doing the work of evangelism, sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it. Philip becomes a famous, effective evangelist, but he starts out as deacon, just like Stephen. He's chosen to serve food to hungry widows. And yet God raises him up into a position of significant leadership where he becomes one of the heroes of the first part of Acts. Philip flees, just like all the other regular people. He flees the great persecution as it's getting started. And he travels north. Our text says he went down to Samaria. We always think down as in south. They, they mean down as in actually down. Samaria is lower elevation than Jerusalem. He went north to Samaria, to the, the region of Samaria, and he went to a place called the city of Samaria. We're not told which city that is. It's probably Shechem or Sychar, it's the same one city, two different names. And it was the most important city in that area historically, and at that time it was the most important history also, most important city also. Remember that the Jews of Judea hated the half-breed Jews of Samaria, and the feeling was mutual. Each believed that they were the better, purer remnant of ancient Judaism. Each had their own holy mountain. Each had their own temple. Each had their own priesthood. They each thought the other was more corrupt. When Philip goes to Samaria, he's walking into hostile territory. And yet we're told he has great success there. Everybody wants to listen to him. Everybody receives the gospel message with joy. How could that be? I'm not going to read it to you, but I encourage you today to read John chapter 4. Just go ahead and write that on your bulletin. John chapter 4. It tells the story of Jesus and his buddies coming to this city Shechem, and having that conversation with the woman at the well that is so famous. They get to the city, Jesus hangs out at the well outside, sends the dudes inside to buy food and supplies. While he's out there, a woman comes out to draw water in the middle of the day. She's an outcast from the, the city. She's, she doesn't have any friends. She has a conversation with Jesus that uh, at some points is really vulnerable, at other points that they're just kind of sarcastically sparring back and forth at each other. The end of that conversation sees her going back into the city and telling everybody she can find that she thinks she has found the Messiah, the Christ. She says, he told me everything I ever did, meaning he exposed the sin in my life, which none of us like, right? And yet when Jesus does that for this woman, she responds with, this must be the Christ. And she she embraces Jesus. She grabs onto him in faith. Sometimes what we need most from the people who love us is to be confronted in our sin. Jesus loves this nameless woman, confronts her in her deep, private, shameful sin. Confronts her in that in such a way that invites her 
out of that past into forgiveness and new life. And she goes running into the town as a missionary saying, I found the Messiah. I know this because he told me all that I did. And he loved me anyway. Jesus hung around there for a few days, got to know the people of the city. They loved him. And in John chapter 4, he talked with them and with the disciples about this idea of sowing and reaping. It's farmer term, right? One person sows the seed, plants the seed. He may not be the one who harvests it. Maybe another guy comes along later and harvests the crop that has been grown. Jesus gives that teaching in Shechem in that setting of the the woman at the well. Now, a couple years later, that teaching is playing out in Shechem because Jesus planted the seeds and Philip gets to come along and harvest. Isn't that beautiful to think that Jesus himself prepared these people for Philip to come and harvest? We're told that Philip actually works miracles there. He's casting demons out. People are being healed. Jesus didn't do any of that when he was in Shechem. He loved the people. He taught the people, but he didn't do any of the fancy stuff there. He deferred so that that could be done by Philip. Planted the seeds. Philip got to harvest it. Now many people are coming to faith in Christ. Those people are the Samaritans the ones hated by the Jews, but loved by the king of the Jews, Jesus. Now, these miracles, why why would Jesus not do the miracles and Philip does do the miracles? We see over and over again in the book of Acts, we've seen it already, we'll see it more later. God in the book of Acts likes to work in certain ways. This is one of his plans. When the gospel comes into a new area, sometimes he gives supernatural power to the evangelists to do signs and wonders, miracles. Not for the sake of the miracles themselves, but to give a stamp of authenticity to the message and the messenger. Why should these Samaritans listen to Philip? He's a Jew. They're Samaritans. They should listen because he's doing these signs and wonders. He's healing them. He's casting the demons out. That gets their attention. That says, there is something supernatural happening here. I'm going to listen to this guy. It supernaturally authenticates the message of the gospel and the messenger. Now, in the New Testament church, there are two leadership offices. You got your elders and you got your deacons. The elders, they have leadership over the whole church, like myself, Russell, and John. We are tasked with the responsibility of overseeing the ministry of the church, caring for the souls of the church, leading the church in general. Then the deacon, that means servant, that that role is more of a on the ground doing the stuff that needs to get done. So in our church, we call ministry team leads. So we've got like the uh, finance ministry team lead, Chris, or we have the, like the outreach ministry and the kids ministry and, and those things. And those leaders and teams are to be doing the work that needs to get done. Those are the two offices we see in the New Testament church. 
What I want you guys to see clearly in this passage today is that even though we tend to think of, well, you know, like the elders or the pastors, you know, like that's, that's kind of like the high-level leadership, we tend to think that way. We have in Stephen before and in Philip in today's passage examples of men being chosen for the deacon role who then become significant preachers, evangelists, miracle workers, missionaries. If you were serving in the nursery like Katie Elliott is right now, my daughter Carrie, if you are serving in kids club, if you are serving in the, in the sound booth in the back, if you're serving as an usher, if you're serving as a ministry team lead, whatever those things are, it is possible that God is preparing you for a greater ministry than you can even imagine right now. You may start out as a nursery worker and end up as a missionary on the other side of the world. You may be pushing buttons back there, advancing the slides, and be called to be a pastor, an evangelist, a professor at a Christian college, all kinds of different things that you can't imagine right now, just like Philip could not imagine when he said, yes, I'll feed hungry widows, that he would be in Samaria working miracles and seeing untold numbers of people coming to faith in Christ. God delights in calling people into small areas of service and then growing them into greater and greater areas of service. How will God use you? The Holy Spirit who empowered Philip, who supernaturally gave him the ability to do those, those special miracles, who helped him clearly proclaim the gospel to people in a slightly different culture, and they came to faith in Christ, that same Holy Spirit is living inside of you if you are a Christian. What does he want to do with you? What does he want to do with you now? How does he want you to serve right now? And who knows what he's calling you to later? What is he going to grow you into? I don't know. But let me encourage you to intentionally offer yourself to him. To say, Lord, whatever you want, however you want me to serve now, whatever you want to turn me into, I am yours. Lead me wherever you want. Now, that's a dangerous prayer, but it's a good prayer. So, we started today in Jerusalem with a madman, Saul, dragging people out of houses, putting them in the prison, beating them, all, all kinds of terrible things. We ended today's passage with a very different situation in Samaria. The capital city of Israel rejected and chased the Christians out. The capital city of rejected Samaria embraced the Christians embraced the gospel and received new life. So that we're told in verse 8, there was much joy in that city. In the rejected city. In the second or third or fourth class city, there was much joy. Where did that joy come from? There's a clear line. Persecution pain, hardship, all that stuff. Persecution led to evangelism, which led to joy. What hardships have you faced? Have you faced actual persecution? Maybe just life has been 
really hard on you. It's beating you up. What if those hardships became the catalyst for greater evangelism on your part? He said, God has been faithful to me even in these hardships. There have been times when I've screamed at him. I've thought that he's the one doing the hardships to me, but he's brought me through it, and therefore I'm going to tell other people about the good and faithful and loving God who's brought me through these things. They need to know. Your hardship can push you to evangelism, which can lead to great joy in the lives of people who are currently lost and waiting to hear that gospel message. Persecution led to evangelism, which led to much joy. So a few questions for you. This sets us up for the song that we're going to sing. Is Jesus worthy of following him, trusting him with your whole life? I don't just mean I could trust you for salvation so that I can spend eternity in heaven with you, but I'm going to trust him like even in how I'm serving right now. Jesus, how do you want me to serve? What do you want me to do? Is he worthy of that kind of trust? Is he worthy of risking your reputation, your livelihood, even your life for him? Is he worthy of that? Is Jesus worthy of your suffering? Are you willing to suffer in order to be identified with Jesus? What if you were to suffer great persecution? Like we have in Acts 8. Is he worthy of that? And is Jesus worthy of responding to persecution or hardship or heartbreak or whatever it is? Is he worthy of responding to that with a renewed effort of risky evangelism? I would say yes, he is. But it's hard to convince my heart that. But I find that when I sing it, it connects with my heart more. That's how music works. So, I'm going to pray. Band's going to come up. We're going to sing about this worthy Messiah who is worthy of all these things. Lord, I pray for...